The public realm is something we not only share and experience, we're part of it. It's us. Famous urban philosophers like Jane Jacobs have written entire books about the importance of public space, what it looks like, how it feels, its role in active transportation, the success of local businesses, or the very health of neighborhoods. Tripping the light fantastic on the sidewalks of your favorite city can be a source of great joy and exploration. But despite public space being something we universally share and contribute to, it's often an afterthought. Bringing conversations about public space to the forefront is at the very core of Spacing Magazine's existence. Here's publisher Matthew Blackett. Well, we started in December 2003, but we had spent a year developing this idea. We were all part of the Toronto Public Space Committee, which had started in uh, 2000-2001 um, and been fighting a lot of um, what we called the advertisation of our street furniture. And then over uh, a period of time, we decided that uh, a magazine or a publication was something that was really helpful for the cause. And uh, so we spent a year developing it, launched it, and then we spun spacing out of the public space committee into its own entity. We turned it into a, a business and then we went and did our thing. And the public space committee did its own thing, which was a lot of advocacy work around uh, street furniture and urban design and a, and, a, and a bunch of that stuff. And, you know, what, what we did is we, we started a publication and wrote about those things while they did a lot of the advocacy work on it. The city has changed a lot in that time period. You know, we, we tend to think of government and city building as a, as a very long thing and, and 15 to 20 years is a long period, but it goes by pretty quickly when, especially when you're involved in it. And we take a look back at, you know, 2003 when we launched, the city has been transformed since, since that, that, that time. So I think there's a lot of interesting things in the public realm um, that are now issues that weren't issues before. Recently, there's been a renewed effort to bring public space issues to the forefront. So, pull up a park bench and let's get into it. This is Spacing Radio. Back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. To begin this episode, I thought it would be a good idea to get some background on the public space fights of the past. So here's Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land and former public space committee member to start us off. Stand by. I started the Public Space Committee in 2005. By then, it was already in its second or third version, but essentially it was uh, a small advocacy group, an organization, but not incorporated or anything, uh, spearheaded by Dave Meslin. Hmm. And, you know, I, I was on the Public Space Committee email list and I got an email saying, hey, uh, City Council is going to be debating the postering bylaw tomorrow afternoon. Come out. Anyone from the public can come. I knew about the the a bit about a little bit about the public space committee and the postering issue. In that case, it was 
there was a proposal for a new bylaw that would largely ban the public's ability to put up posters on utility poles, mm-hmm. uh, which was and is you know, a very particular type of – an effective type of grassroots communication that you think would be fundamental to any urban area. But a substantial portion of city council believed it was inherently ugly and inherently messy and made the public space look worse and was degrading. Mm-hmm. And they certainly didn't feel this way about advertising, about billboards, about slapping ads on garbage bins or whatever. In fact, they were quite enthusiastic about those things, uh, the implication being that you can only use the public space to express yourself if you have enough money to rent a billboard. Right. So that was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so I went to City Hall for the first time. I'd never been inside the building, let alone at a city council meeting, though I'd seen glimpses on TV, and sat with Dave Meslin, Mez, and some other people, and I was enthralled. I had never seen a city council meeting in person for the first time was uh, literally a life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. And so I attended the next monthly meeting of the Public Space Committee and the monthly meetings after that, and it gradually became more involved and more involved in working on these issues at Toronto City Hall and doing advocacy there including issues related to outdoor advertising and the privatization of street furniture. So things like transit shelters, garbage bins, all this other stuff that they eventually gave to Astral Media. I Mm -hmm. spent a couple years of my life fighting against the city giving this contract to Astral Media, which is the – which is and was an advertising company that had no serious experience providing – city scale infrastructure right. which is why you have you know the city now is full of all these garbage bins with pedals that just break down and it, it find that find a new way to break down every single year it, you know it turned out as badly and embarrassingly as we had feared that was part of the astral contract that was part of the astral contract and that's the reason why these little garbage bins with with hats and pedals that fall apart or catch fire are they never really worked no they they <laughs> it was a no, no, and as as was foreseeable, given that the only street furniture uh, that Astro had built up into that time were information pillars that also didn't work. So that contract still goes for another seven years, seven and a half years wow. from now to twenty twenty seven, and they'll probably just find another advertising company. So that and the, then that moved into campaigning around a billboard bylaw because. Billboards in the city, it turned out, were by and large illegal, and the billboard companies had been, in many cases or most cases, knowingly ignoring city laws for years, and the city just didn't give a shit. Right. So there was a large campaign to um, work with the, the Trump Public Space Committee, working with Rami Tabello of IllegalSigns.ca and Spacing and BeautifulCity.ca, which very successfully campaigned for attacks on billboards, third-party signs in Toronto. Right. And that came into law about a decade ago and has definitely seems to have provided a, a better, more consistent framework for outdoor signage in Toronto. So you lost the street furniture battle, but the the billboard tax is still the implemented bil- the today. The billboard tax still is still there. The budget every year. The billboard bylaw is still there. I mean, they've yeah, they've, they've hauled out other things. I mean, we... Fought against CC police CCTV cameras. We got you know a bit of a pause on that, but it didn't go as far. I mean, we the the mega bins we got killed. I can't even remember all the different campaigns and things thematically. These were sorts of the things that we were working on at the time, largely because no one else was, and that was the big thing. And that was Dave Meslin's big thing is like why why do this work? Why is certainly not the most important thing. It's simply because 
public space didn't have an advocate. Issues around the public realm often mm. are an afterthought. And, and I find that strange because everyone experiences the public realm uh, in some way, shape, or form in almost daily. Given that everyone experiences the public realm and has a relationship, whether they think about it or not, why does it often become such an afterthought or, you know, people, it's kind of written off as like, well, why are we even talking about this? Goodness, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, on the one hand, the basic infrastructure of a city is something that ideally you shouldn't have to think about. All the services, the roads, the sidewalks, the 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 benches, the water, everything transit I, I ideally all of this should be stuff that functions as a part of the fabric of life and everything should blend well into the thing everything should function it shouldn't have to be something that is necessarily top of mind the other thing is when you start thinking about it you realize like well, what how what is a city other than its public realm right i mean pu- private realms have, i mean there there's a lot of stuff to be discussed and toronto has terrible standards in its private realm too but in terms of like what can a city most directly influence, what can citizens most directly influence? And part of it comes down to the fundamental democratic principle that people should be able to have a say in how the space around them is built and how and how it looks and how it functions and how it works. You should – a given person, a citizen or a resident or what have you should be able to – play a role in shaping the society around them. And sometimes that means physically shaping the urban landscape. Right. Are there new concerns in the public space that you think about from time to time? Have things changed or are they just a different degree of the same thing? It's a very good question. It's the sort of thing I still get like, yeah, anxious about when I, you know, I see stories and like, just you just get yeah, really upset. I can sometimes not read beyond the headline because things have, in many cases, continued to erode in the ways that were not just foreseeable, but foreseen and predicted. I mean, whether it's, you know, Dundas Dundas Square has kind of always been a fundamentally a lost cause, but it still makes me angry uh, at the degree to which somehow the the city board that manages it makes it worse and worse. Dundas Square, for a while, worked in spite of itself. It was a space where people could congregate it had chairs it has things that it's like you know there was and it still has some of those things but it almost it did work in spite of itself for a while despite the fact that it was always badly conceived as like a toronto's version of Times square or piccadilly circus um but over time somehow they've it's just uh and you know and the the people the design people who designed under square are the most vocal about this it's been just destroyed by more and more video billboards and signs in the square itself, frankly, de- designed by the same person who designed all these garbage bins and all the astral mm-hmm. furniture. Thankfully, the, encroachin- the encroachment of video billboards in Toronto has not gotten that much worse yet, mm-hmm. but it's only a matter of time. But more generally, the way we think about public space and public realm has changed and shifted and, the, you know, reflecting back on the work the Public Space Committee did, and we always knew it was very much a the, – the approach was always very much a middle-class preoccupation. It was very much – it was – you know, the group was largely, not exclusively white, but largely white. Uh, and so were most of the people involved in the broader public space movement. Mm-hmm. And it was certainly a very particular conception of – what public space is and public realm advocacy is and without fully grasping the full range of ways that different people experience public space differently 
we certainly got into that a bit with the campaign against uh, police uh, CCTV cameras mm-hmm. and the ways that those criminalize people, uh, racialize people, uh, people of different level, different means, certain areas of the city. But by and large, thinking back to the things that we spent the most time doing, which I still think were absolutely worthwhile and important, and especially because no one else is doing them, but also that like what a, I guess a middle class type of activism and issues or and issues those those are and those were. Um, it wasn't until Rob Ford was elected that I think people we started to realize how narrow our conception of Toronto was mm-hmm. that the amalgamation that had taken place in 1998 became a very real thing in that realizing that what a small slice of Toronto this was and what this represented and when we talk about Toronto we're really we were really only talking about a very very small portion of it and the rest of it was often in the abstract I mean that was one of David Miller's problems I mean he once again he absolutely like Transit City would have helped the entirety of the city of Toronto in a way that nothing since nothing proposed since would. Um, but he did a poor job of explaining that and he did a poor job of selling that. And mm-hmm. he let himself, unfortunately uh, be cast as a person who was only interested in the downtown or only understood the downtown. And maybe there was some truth to that, but he never, but you know, his failure to articulate the ways in which the projects and initiatives he championed would help uh, Scarborough and North York and Etobicoke really ended up hurting the city in the long run. I, I think what I'm hearing is that uh, it's important to think of all of Toronto mm. and that uh, maybe the issues downtown aren't the same as in Scarborough or Etobicoke mm. or North York. Um, you mentioned the fight against uh, surveillance, mm. uh, police surveillance or otherwise. We're now at a point where, you know, we are seriously considering implementing surveillance, not just for law enforcement mm. purposes, but uh for some ostensibly very good reasons and you'd want mm-hmm. there to be uh, safeguards in place mm-hmm. um you know especially when we're talking about uh, proposals like the sidewalk labs kind oh, of yeah. city yeah. of the future it, it seems like in that case we're we're looking at the same mm-hmm. issues that you were concerned yeah. about in 2005 uh but now the capability of surveillance uh, has reached a, a, an almost science fiction level yeah, I remember maybe it was a year ago. It must have been the start that got some draft of one proposal or another. And it became evident that Sidewalk – something to the effect that they wanted this, they wanted to basically take control, like full – even more more so than we knew. Or they had considered taking a thorough control of this portion of the city. They wanted the city to just basically turn over this thing, this this area, not just the land, but like the municipal services, the infrastructure mm-hmm. so it was to them. Security, um... And I just remember thinking like we were just like worried about the city giving garbage bins to an ad company, which turned out terribly. Yeah. But just like this company that, I mean, among other things, I mean, they own YouTube, which is possibly more responsible for disinformation, propaganda and radicalization than any other in any other platform that has ever existed. They want to be trusted to run this city. They don't want to know. They want to own and run a chunk of the city. They just think they they should have that, or at least they considered that. And the fact that they entertain that at all is terrifying and upsetting. And I mean, it it yeah, it's the dystopian nightmare of the privatization of public space. I, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak with yeah. me. Uh, you're an extremely online person. Where can people find you? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. That's my last name, G-O-L-D-S-B-I-E. I guess it would be odd if it weren't my last name. And I'm an editor at I'm the news editor at Canada Land, CanadaLandShow.com. I handle the written, not the audio stuff, and I co-host the Wag the Doug podcast for Canada Land about Doug Ford at the provincial government and all the uh, absurdities, bullshit, and contradictions involved in Doug Ford running the provincial government. All right, Jonathan, thanks so much. Kara Chowyu is a researcher, spacing contributor, and public space advocate in Toronto. Through initiatives like Defensive TO, she's been able to highlight many aspects of the public realm that are uninviting or exclusive by design. Kara, along with Public Space Committee founder Dave Meslin and a team of community builders, is trying to revitalize the group and bring these issues back to the forefront. So Kara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a long time. Uh, you're a frequent spacing contributor, and you uh, do a little bit of everything. Uh, the, the main thing your project has seemed to be lately is uh, defensive TO. And I, I wanted you to talk to you about that first, because I think it'll lead into uh, something new that you're kind of getting into. So uh, can, can you tell me a bit about uh, defensive urbanism? It's a term that I, I don't know if everyone's going to be familiar with. Absolutely. So defensive urbanism is the term I like to use. It's also known as hostile or unpleasant architecture. And it's basically a design strategy that uses the built environment to guide or restrict um, human behavior in often public spaces as a form of crime prevention or order maintenance. And uh, you most often see it in Toronto in the form of a bench with a center bar. Mm -hmm. And can you explain why that center bar is kind of problematic? Yeah. So, well, the center bar is meant to keep people from lying down on the bench, but of course, this affects more people than just people who are homeless, who are trying to find a place off of the ground to uh, rest. You know, it really restricts the function of a bench, and it really also affects how we conceive of our public spaces. And a bench is usually something that is considered welcoming, a symbol of, you know, this is a place to come and rest and, and uh, maybe watch the world go by. And when you have benches that are designed to make people sit for five minutes, but not that much longer, it really kind of cheapens the space. Right. And you, you point out other examples, not just from Toronto or cities in Canada, but from all over the world. Is this becoming more prevalent? Has it always been thus? And uh, we're just now starting to have conversations around it. Uh, can you take me a bit through the history of these kinds of discussions? Mm -hmm. So we've definitely been defending our cities as long as we've been having them. So we can think back to walls, uh, guard towers and all those kind of medieval defenses. But this new strategy that we're using, it's in public spaces that are meant to be accessible and inclusive, but we're kind of sneakily uh, getting them in to kind of filter out who is using the spaces and how we're using the spaces. But this kind of defensive urbanism has been documented since the early 90s in LA with uh, Mike Davis in his uh, book, City of Courts. So it's it's definitely something that has been on the radar, but I think with a combination of social media and um, the real kind of capability to share images that are so visceral, they create a, an emotion. It's really becoming a popular thing that people are becoming aware of. And some of these interventions are very sneaky. Like it's kind of almost appalling how how they get these things in here. 
The worst, I think, is defensive architecture that is premised to be art or uh, bike infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I, I've seen uh, examples where in, um, I think it's Vancouver, where there was an event grate where people would go and keep themselves warm. And there was this wavy metal installation that was installed on it, much like what Toronto General Hospital had a few years ago. But this was said to be an art piece that it was supposed to reflect the mountains. I think there's also a bench in Liberty Village that has a, like a boulder or a stone separating it. And this is meant to be art. But, you know, we have to kind of think about, is it, is it not? Like, what are the implications of this anyways? An example I'm thinking of is uh, the now famous, instantly beloved dog park uh, in Berksy Park, a park where they've added a, you know, a new and very beautiful fountain with these sort of ceramic dog sculptures all around it. It's very cute, but uh, they were getting chipped and people were pointing their fingers at, uh, they said it was skateboarders. Skateboarders had somehow chipped one of the brand new dogs uh, and it was a whole thing. And then sort of overnight, under cover of night almost, all of a sudden we're seeing these spikes everywhere that are, they said, meant to ensure that the space was being used for its its intention, which was like a, a gathering place, a nice place to kind of sit down, not for skateboarders. You know, what you're also seeing is these spikes are on the side of the fountain where people would like to sit there. They're everywhere. And uh, it just seemed like the in, in these cases, the the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Uh, we say we want to create a public space, but not too public. And we want to open it for everyone, but not necessarily everyone. Uh, and we want it for all seasons. And you write a lot mm-hmm. about how things are shut off in winter seasons, even though there's six months minimum of winter in this country. There's that weird push and pull that we seem to have about our public spaces that we 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 say we want them, but we don't really want them to be too public and you know too open. That that so can you talk to to that a bit? Yeah, I think I think a part of this is also it comes down to. This is seen to be a practical solution to managing conflicts in public space. You know, you you don't need to increase policing necessarily because the built environment does it for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like it's also connected to our politics of austerity where we're looking to reduce maintenance costs and personnel costs uh, everywhere we can, especially in public goods, like public space, you know, you, you see this in washrooms where operating hours are reduced or maybe even a washroom is closed down because it's too costly to maintain it. And it could be closed down because under the premise of vandalism or unwanted loitering. So these things are definitely, it, it's not, it's not necessarily vicious, but it is this kind of best practice that has been put into place without us really critically thinking about it. Right. But you do critically think about the public realm in, in uh, all of what you do. And I guess that probably leads us to uh, the latest thing that brought you in here to talk about is uh, the Toronto Public Space Committee, which is kind of having like a soft relaunch, it seems like it's been around since the early aughts. And uh, you just had a, a meeting uh, at City Hall. That's right. So we had our first meeting last week at City Hall in the City Council Chambers which is fantastic, holding a meeting about public space in one of the city's most iconic. But this is something that we've been thinking about for about a year or so, Uh, myself and Dave Meslin, who's um, the original founder of uh, Toronto Public Space Committee. Um, It was always kind of an informal thing. Whoever showed up to the meetings were part of the committee. I really loved that. And I was inspired by the work that they were doing when I moved to the city 15 years ago. 
So when I was working on my own work with Defensive TO, I was really reaching out to different groups to see who could support me in my work and get the word out. And I connected with Dave Meslin and we started talking about maybe some sort of speaking about Toronto Public Spaces relaunched. So here we are. Our next meeting hopefully will be next month. I have to go through a little bit of uh, bureaucracy to book some uh, some more space, but that is something that uh, is uh, an eventuality of the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the Public Space Committee began in around 2005, one of its top concerns was uh, billboards and uh, postering. I'm wondering how how conversations about the public realm have developed and what are we talking about now and what do we have to look ahead to? Yeah, so it did start out with thinking about things like postering, illegal billboards, as well as the uh, TTC transit shelters and amenities and things like that. So it's really interesting to see how it's evolved from pre-internet, where we were thinking about posters. They were really a big way to communicate about events and things going on in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and and having a, a ban against that was really something that was uh, important to address. But now we're looking more at um, moving away from just the idea that public space is a public good that we we really need because we're we're talking about public space all the time now. We're recognizing that with our new developments, that the public realm is an important part of it all. So now we're thinking about things like accessibility. Uh, people with um, disabilities are hugely ignored in our public space considerations. I'm especially thinking about a day like today where the streets are covered with snow and now it's all hard and icy and impossible for, you know, the most able people to to be walking down the sidewalks. So there is a real issue with getting our sidewalks clear, our public spaces clear for people to navigate safely. Another thing we're thinking about is gender in public space, indigenous placemaking, and uh, really kind of looking at how we can share the land and our spaces more equitably and inclusively. So moving from the idea of of reclaiming space to what does the space that we have look like and who does it include? And so are these meetings uh, kind of setting an agenda or is it just kind of feeling people out to see what should be on an agenda going forward? What, what stage are you at at this point? Yeah, our first meeting was really to feel it out. Uh, we invited some past people who were involved with the committee and people who are doing awesome public space projects. So we had Sabina Ali from the Thorncliffe Park Women's Committee. They've done wonderful things with improving their public space. Mm-hmm. Daniel Rotson, he's a co-lead of Plaza Pops, where... Basically, they've created this pop-up public space in a strip mall plaza in Scarborough. I think it was Wexford Heights that began it all. We were also joined by Lanerick Bennett Jr., who spoke about the past projects he was involved with, with um, painting street murals Mm -hmm. and how that can really involve a community to transform their space, but also it can act as a way to maybe slow traffic down. And then finally, we heard from Jeff Cattell from um, Steering Committee member of Walk Toronto, and he had some insights in how public spaces are definitely changing, especially with implications from the gig economy and smart city tech and how we have to be aware of that. So we just kind of opened up the conversation talking about some of these issues. 
But our next meeting will put it out there for people to come out with their own public space ideas and projects and uh, pitch it and see who's in on working on it. And we'll provide some space for people to work on their ideas and hopefully some infrastructure if we can. It's all volunteer run. So, you know, we'll see what we can do. Most people at some point in their day-to-day life, or at least as part of their week, exist in the public realm. We all experience the public realm. It's a major part of life as a person, either in an urban setting or even in a rural setting. And yet it seems like conversations about the public realm often take a backseat or don't happen at all. And uh, maybe you agree, but uh, I wanted to ask you first why it feels like uh, this thing that is universally experienced by all of us. Uh, is is such an afterthought, takes such a backseat so often. Yeah, so I think that public space is often an afterthought because, especially in North America, with our neoliberal politics, we really don't value public goods and funding public goods. And so public spaces and parks and all those kind of things have suffered under these regimes. We did see a little bit of a... A shift in politics here in Toronto with David Miller and his City Beautiful campaign mm-hmm. was really supportive about creating these great public spaces. And and we've had some great things with um, Toronto Parks and Rec in creating these spaces. But I, I feel like even the designers don't quite understand what people want mm-hmm. in their public spaces. Or maybe there's just a certain kind of conception that public spaces should be, should look good, should be... Uh, something that's on a postcard that can sell the city rather than messy and lived in kind of appropriated spaces. So I think that it it depends on what you're thinking, what the spaces, the purpose of the space is used for. Mm-hmm. It seems like a kind of post-war idea of turning your back on the whole idea of community and the public realm, a sort of idea that that you could sort of exist in your home and in your workplace and nothing in between. You never have to experience the outside. Not to knock the suburbs, but a lot of our suburbs are designed that way, that literally it's about the privacy uh, and seclusion of the family unit. And I think we're we're now shaking that off. It it took, you know, 60 years. Now I think we've learned the idea of community and the public is desirable and people pay top dollar to do that. So that's good. But uh, now we're facing a problem where we have to make sure that it's uh, accessible for all, that it's not just uh, uh, the benefit of living in uh, wealthy, gentrified neighborhoods as well. Mm -hmm. And where are we creating these public spaces? A lot of new spaces are created through development agreements or money that that comes through that. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of new spaces built in places that have resources, have wealth, and a real lack of quality public spaces in especially our inner suburban areas that is grossly neglected. There's the assumption, as you said, that people in the suburbs don't use or don't need public spaces. But we see the opposite. And we see places like dead malls become new community centers because there is that need for community and for space to foster that. Mm-hmm. You speak about uh, Sabina Ali, a former uh, Jane Jacobs Prize winner. I believe that the thing that she began getting involved with is the design of the sort of tower in the park uh, apartment buildings in, in our inner suburbs. I think they were built with the intention of these parks around these towers being public spaces to be used, but nobody was. And uh, she and the people she was working with, uh, she worked to 
sort of activate those spaces in a way that hadn't been since the 60s when they were built. Mm -hmm. And and she speaks of a big thing that was a block for using these spaces was that they had outdated, like really old playground equipment Mm -hmm. that they had to request to be fixed. They had to take it upon themselves to maintain the area, to pick up litter and stuff like that. So I think that... There, there really is a role for the city and um, for collective might, I guess, to, to really create these public spaces for everyone to, to help people who already are working towards bettering their communities to, to give them some help with that as well and some funding. And so if people want to get involved in the Toronto Public Space Committee, uh, how should they go about that? Well, stay tuned for our next meeting. You can join our Facebook page. We're on Twitter. We also have a website, torontopublicspace.ca, I believe, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or Google it. And um, you can join the the email list and stay updated with everything. And you're on Twitter. Where can people find you? You can find me at Kara Shalou. Okay. And also uh, Defensive TO is my project. <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your yarn-bombing neighbor, your favorite TTC busker, or maybe put up a poster about it. I make this show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more discussion about modern public space issues, check out our special Future Fix podcast series. You can start with The Secret Life of Sensors. Cheers. Cheers.